Thank you for joining Nature Revisited for part two of Negotiating with Nature. There are many ways we can reconnect with nature, through history, through music, through the arts. Nature is in the way we express ourselves. We're a historic public garden, and our mission is to preserve and protect what was here in George and Martha Washington's time to the date 1799. What we hope is that people that stroll these gardens and grounds can really set themselves back 250 years ago. We as a, as a horticulture team believe that we want to educate people every day. We want to enlighten them about what's here. And we try to engage them so that they themselves will realize that this is so much more than just this display of history. Realizing that plants are, are living things and not just at that moment, but they're living toward the future too. They're always thinking about the next season. It can change someone's life, what they see here. It has a real story to tell. And this garden that we're in now was so special. The landscape he was trying to create was something in his mind beautiful enough and special enough that it would reflect the man that he had become. And so when people came, he needed a pleasure garden because he knew that really fine gardens had pleasure gardens, which were gardens to grow plants not for their use, but for their beauty. But he also knew that the most important part of gardening was still the garden of necessity, which were the fruits, vegetables, and berries. Cultivate the earth for that, but surround them with a border of flowers. You can have both. You can combine beauty with necessity. Few gardeners failed as often as Thomas Jefferson, or at least wrote about it as uh, unrelentingly as he did. In his garden book, he has a, a calendar of plantings in his thousand-foot-long vegetable garden. And some years you see the repetition of the word failed, um, you know, 15, 19 times down this one column. Uh, he once wrote that if he failed 99 times out of 100 in his gardening experiments at Monticello, that one uh, success was worth those 99 failures. He wrote that in gardening, it's the failure of one thing that is repaired by the success of another. A wonderful, beautiful mantra, not just about gardening, but about life itself. But I think that from a very young age, Jefferson was enamored with the natural world and his interest in gardening and horticulture really arose in so many ways from this wide-eyed appreciation of nature. And gardening for Jefferson was a social activity. Jefferson not only looked at plants as a vehicle for social change, but he also looked at plants as a way of relating to people in some ways as a vehicle for social intercourse. And even on his most serious letters on the future of the American Republic, we'd often uh, begin the letters by discussing how his gardens were doing at Monticello, or what was, what was blooming outside of Washington. And there's this real union of gardening and sociability throughout Jefferson's gardening career. People don't write letters much anymore, which is a shame, but it's so much fun to share from your garden to take a plant and pass it along to someone else, and then they do the same for you. Washington, if, if there was a gift to give to Washington, the greatest thing you could give him was a plant that he wasn't familiar with. Washington was a farmer. 
He wrote that nothing in my opinion would contribute more to the welfare of these states than the proper management of its lands. And nothing in this state, at least, is least understood. So his mission, along with the other founders, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Adams, they really felt that they were the ones that needed to do the experimentation because they could fail and not be ruined. But from their failures, they learned, of course, as we all do as gardeners, and they would share that with the common farmer so that they could improve their practices as well. Yeah, Jefferson uh, was first in food and first in wine and first in gardening in a, lot of, um, in a lot of different ways. And he had a myriad of interest in the cultivated landscape. He wrote that the greatest service which can be rendered in any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. So uh, he was not only carrying the, the banner of what we call the organic gardening movement, he didn't have too many alternatives at the time, but he believed in this sort of wholesome balance between wild nature on the one hand and the cultivated garden on the other that I think is, um, is kind of remarkable for the time. Well, the word nature was a word that perhaps appears more than any other word in the writings of Thomas Jefferson. There's this kind of common wisdom that um, Europeans, when they arrived in the New World, were out to conquer nature. But I think Jefferson saw nature as a, a, as a benign force, believed in its inherent good, both in its chaotic, wild aspects, but also in the, the unity, the symmetry of nature as well. So again, uh, Jefferson's ideas were always evolving and it was always difficult to capture him. And Jefferson is all things to all people in so many different ways. He's an ambiguous figure in American history. Uh, he's contradictory. And um, digging a hole to find him in some ways is a hole that you uh, dig, dig, dig forever. All the gardens here are subtle. I think what you see in, in this 18th century garden is gardening in its simplest form. And this is a dream come true for me. When they put me on this big old tractor mowing this 12-acre field, I was hooked. It just takes that one little spark. And I feel that Mount Vernon has been that spark, has been that hook for a whole lot of people. I think they come in here and they leave with a whole different outlook in life. They can't believe what they saw. And they come away from here inspired, enlightened, and, and changed. Robert Frost defined poetry as a momentary stay against confusion. You could almost define a garden that way. You could say a garden is a momentary stay against confusion. You could say that in the wilderness of life, there are these organized spaces where the human imagination has poured its energy to create light, a border boundary, a certain kind of order among plants, has cultivated it and used it. And so it's the same with literature, same with painting, same with dance, same with every art. So art, and gardening is one of the great arts, is about creating human spaces where we inhabit nature and we create a momentary stay against confusion. I think there is a connection between gardens and music in terms of form. 
Gardens have form, they have shape, they have texture, they have balance. And in a piece of music, you often find that as well. And it's also, being in a garden, you're on a journey through a landscape. And in music, it's the same way. You're on a path, you're on a journey. It's always been the same gesture. It's always been the same connection that people have to shaping and forming landscape and forming gardens. It's always been a very important piece of human culture. Art enables us to get in touch with our deepest human sense of self. Art enables us to cultivate sanity. Art puts us in touch with wilderness. And a garden is simply a, a gesture in the direction of wilderness, but it's saying, look, this has had the human imagination applied to the natural world. And so we're seeing a cultivated, civilized form of nature. Gardens are also places that become habitats for wild living things who want to come and occupy it. But, you know, human beings especially, finally, need to occupy a garden. You've got the gardener who creates the garden, who plans it, who creates the borders, who imagines the selection and the arrangement of the plants, just as the poet is making the arrangement of the words. And then you cultivate this garden, and eventually, the garden grows, and with patience and tender care, the thing comes into being. And nevertheless, it's a temporary thing. It can go wild. Very quickly, nature reasserts itself and wants to overwhelm. That's why gardens are a very human activity. It's the human imagination pushing back against nature. But it's not a fight, it's a tug of contrarieties. It's a kind of tussle with nature to say, here's the human place in the natural world. Get my heart 
heart in the clouds Hear my heart in the clouds All this gravity won't pull me down now May it always be this way What else would we do with all our time If you could see the view We need to start bringing nature home, no matter where home is. The key here is for everyone to have a relationship, not the right one or the best one or the one that's in fashion. So the key is not which one's right or which one's best. The key is to have one and to get in touch with the nurturing and the growth that it provides. The ability to express yourself through a garden is a very powerful thing. You know, we're all not painters and we're not writers, but anybody can garden. And that treasure of self-expression, I think, is a deeply moving thing about gardening. Gardens can be at home. They can be as simple as something in a pot on a deck of a house or you know, an apartment building, or much more elaborate. All of those are, again, experiencing, actually, we're seeing a resurgence. People are doing quite interesting innovations in building roof gardens. And you see them all over New York City. These tall buildings will have this gorgeous garden on top. People are finding spaces to make beautiful gardens. Gardening to have this lasting, deep power needs to be in a collaboration with nature. A garden, to me, is essentially a relationship. In some ways, I think garden design is a little contradictory, uh, paradoxical, because I'm not really sure how you design a relationship. I mean, you can design a place, but really, to me, it's not a garden until that shovel hits the soil. To me, it only really exists when that relationship is there. We need to work with nature. And as gardeners, that's our role, is working with nature, enhancing it and shaping it and leaving it alone in some cases. I think that the modern equivalent of free verse in poetry is the new garden, which is less controlled. I think gardens are now trying to negotiate that space between wilderness and the interior world or the urban world. So it's an elaborate series of negotiations between wild and tame, between the darkness of trees and moss and thicket, and the urban world where everything is totally artificial. I mean, people live in buildings and houses, and yet they feel cut off from wilderness. And so 
The new garden, I think, is becoming a kind of liminal space between interior and exterior, between mind and nature. When we step back into the garden or take a stroll in, the, in a park or visit a farm, it's this visceral, personal, and really deep reconnection that was actually never lost. And our brains are so powerful that they oftentimes overcome that, and it feels like something new. It feels like a new discovery. Our bodies were never disconnected. The air we breathe is the oxygen in that air is being provided by all those plants and the sunshine. So we, we've never been disconnected. I think that's an important principle that we've lost in gardening. I think part of our current lack of interest in gardening, especially among younger generations, is that we no longer define gardening as pleasurable. I think we've kind of forgotten that. We have this American Protestant work ethic that you know really says our yards are work. We must mow our yards all the time. We have to clip our shrubbery within an inch of their lives. But you know, do we really have yards that we love being in? I think our relationship with the garden is, is going to change as we learn more about it. In the past, we have viewed plants primarily as either food or decorations. Uh, that's not good enough anymore. We need functional plants. And let me just give you an example. In the mid-Atlantic states, oak trees support 557 species of caterpillars. You might say, well, I don't want any caterpillars in my yard, but actually you do. Each one of those caterpillars is bird food. So that's 557 species of bird food. Now you can compare that to a street tree from China called Zelkova, we planted all over the place. It supports zero caterpillars. So you put Zelkova in your yard, you have no, no bird food, no birds. You put the oaks in your yard, it's the best tree you can use. When people learn that, they're, they're eager. They say, I want to, I want to find the caterpillars. I want to feed the birds. I think one of the great shifts in horticulture in the next decade is really going to be from thinking about plants as individual objects to thinking about plants in communities. And I, I think there's a, a lot of potential when we understand that plants are really social creatures. The, you know, the, the traditional horticultural idea is this plants as a bunch of individual objects we take and arrange in our gardens. There's so many great lessons to be had from the way plants grow in communities in the wild. And I think it's something perennial gardeners probably understand better than other gardeners is how interesting and complex those relationships are between plants. The potential of plants is gonna just bust wide open. There's this perception that perennial gardens are high maintenance. You know, there's a perception that the more complex and the more mixed a planting is, the harder it is and the more human knowledge it takes to maintain that. And I think when you look at plants in the wild, they're incredibly diverse. They're incredibly resilient. They're incredibly low maintenance. And there's no maintenance, in fact. So how many of the things that we need to happen at home are happening in our lawn? The carbon sequestration, supporting the pollinators, helping the food webs, managing our watersheds, none of them none of them on the lawn. So I don't suggest we get rid of lawn, I just say we should shrink it a little bit, like at least half, and turn the rest of that land into productive plant communities that help our properties add to local ecosystem function instead of destroying it. That's a brand new way of looking at the land that we own. If people consider these facts to be alarmist, that's because they are alarming. We humans are over the carrying capacity of the planet. That means that in the long run, we cannot sustain the populations we have living the lifestyles that we live. But if we put the plants back that determine what the carrying capacity is, uh, we can actually raise it. We can increase the Earth's ability to support us.
combine beauty with function instead of simply building gardens based on aesthetics. And we can do that. It's all about plant choice. About 80% of the plants we plant in our managed landscapes are uh, ornamentals from someplace else. Let's balance that a little bit. Let's get those high functioning plants into the landscape. Beauty is a rightness, a sense of proportion, a, a rightness that I don't define. I don't make the rules about what's beautiful and what's not beautiful out here. So beauty is an indicator to me. But mostly it's just being out here. And I think this is one important part of gardening is just showing up and being here uh, and watching and, and uh, not getting impatient with yourself or the plants. You have so little control really in the end. So you have to get cozy with that. And I don't think control leads to happiness. <laughs> so wilderness is, is a constant reminder of that. It is bigger than us. So we have to negotiate. <laughs> the garden to me provides a portal to experience otherness. In this time where we're surrounded with so much technology, our smartphones, which mirror our friends, mirror our social networks, mirror ourselves in so many ways, having an authentic encounter, pulling out of myself to encounter, putting my hands in soil, you know, is an encounter with otherness that to me is, it's a, it's a prayer. I think that the great reminder that gardens are not meant to endure, they're meant to enchant. And when we remember that, gardens are not monuments to our own existence. They're these wonderful ephemeral places that will only, only there to give us pleasure while we're alive and then they will disappear. To me, that is one of the great joys of gardening. mental health, we need to be in touch with two things, nature, green space, in which we can sort of root ourselves and really find the quiet and the surround that enables us to really think deeply and to commune with nature, which is a kind of commune with the spirit. And I also think that the garden, like the poem, like the painting, like the ballet, is a kind of shaped experience that helps us stay sane. I've always said that poetry is about finding a language adequate to our experience. The same thing could be said for gardening. Gardening is about finding a natural language adequate to our experience. More fundamentally, they matter for our humanity. Uh, to me, the more we urbanize, the more distance we are from nature. To me, the value of the private garden uh, in particular becomes a place of connection for, for people to evoke the memory of wildness. Let's think about how we can make choices and what can we gain and what would we lose by those choices. We absolutely have to negotiate. Because of this cultural failure that we have, it's presumed at the outset that we'll be negotiating with nature. We've got some choices to make, and nature's not a bad thing to work with. Most of us don't have a real close relationship with nature. But when we start moving towards one, 
then things start to change. Growing up, I often felt like an outsider, that I didn't fit in, often without purpose. It was the garden and my relationship with nature that made me feel that I belong, that I am a part of this whole thing. Maybe it's time to go back, back to my garden. of characters in alphabetical order. Annie Bond, Cheryl Charles, Peter Hatch, Gordon Hayward, Dean Norton, Jay Perini, Sandy Price, Thomas Rayner, Susan Reynolds, Mitchell Silver, Scott Stokey, and Doug Ptolemy. The music was by David Virgil. If you would like to watch the film, please visit NordenProductions.com. If you enjoy Nature Revisited, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. Nature.